Have you heard of Olivia, the travel company for lesbians and LGBTQ plus women? You know what they say, wherever you go, there you are. And when you're a lesbian or LGBTQ plus woman, you want to go on vacation, let your hair down and be your unique self. Olivia Travel creates full takeovers of their cruise, resort, riverboat, and adventure vacations. So you'll spend the week with LGBTQ plus women who come from all different backgrounds yet have so much in common. It's life-changing to be in the majority on your vacation. You don't know until you go. Discover Olivia for yourself at olivia.com or through the link in our show notes. Save $100 on your next Olivia booking with promo code CRUISING. You know, it was a little neighborhood bar that was international. There was not a place that you could go in this world that if you said the United States, they didn't say mods. Or if you said San Francisco, they didn't say mods. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. That was Ricky Stryker, owner of Mod Study and a number of other San Francisco bars between the 1960s and 1990s. Mods in particular is cemented in our history, largely because of the 1993 documentary, Last Call at Mods. I'm Paris Poirier. I directed and produced Last Call at Mods. And I'm Karen, Karen Kiss, and I produced Last Call at Mods. Paris and Karen are partners. We did have our first date at Mods. We did. Even before the documentary, Mods was well known to lesbians across the country. Everybody had been to Mods. You didn't live in San Francisco and you didn't go to Mods. Um, and in fact, I went to Mods from the airport when on my first trip to San Francisco. The idea for Last Call at Mods came to Paris and Karen in 1989 through a good friend connected to the bar. And she gave us the secret information that Mods was going to be closed permanently. And so that's how we started it. Mm -hmm. It was an inside track thing. I had been studying at USC Cinema School. Paris had studied film. I had studied broadcast communication arts. We certainly understood what documentary was about, but we'd never made a film, ever. But to make it, we had to be naive. In other words, all everything was stacked against it getting completed. And, and so we just had to have this blind faith. And uh, this just grew and grew and grew. This is Cruising, a podcast about the last lesbian bars in the U.S. My name is Sarah Gabrielli, and I'm traveling to each one of them with my two friends and chosen family. This episode, we're taking you back in time to mods. Ricky Stryker, the legendary owner of Mods, passed away decades ago, back in 1994, but she's remembered by many. She had short hair, kind of a pixie cut, and um, very lively eyes. This is Susan Fahey, a very close friend of Ricky's. She wasn't very tall, but she was a very um, commanding person, very interested in knowing people. Um, whether you're the cab driver or her bartender or her partner, she had a very, very curious mind. She had a an easy way of 
well, of course, we used to say it's because she couldn't remember people's names, but she might come down from the office upstairs and walk in and somebody sitting at the bar. Hi, hon. She called everybody hon. And it was very welcoming kind of thing. Um, but personally, she was very interesting, very engaged, had a pretty sharp wit. And um, she was completely secure in herself in business. Susan is one of the women featured in The Last Call at Maud's documentary. She was an important presence at the bar and a number of Ricky's businesses. I met Ricky Stryker in uh, 1974, and um, we became good friends quickly. And um, she hired me to work at Maud's in February 1976. And not too long after that year, I was her manager. Then she opened Amelia's and I was the general manager of that. Amelia's is probably the most notable of Ricky's bars outside of Mods. From what we've heard, it was an extremely popular, multi-level lesbian dance club. Then she opened Olive Oil's Pier 50 and I was the manager of that. So got to know her very well and uh, was a dear friend of hers to her death, until her death in 1994. Ricky Stryker was born in 1925 and grew up in Toledo, Ohio. She was raised by relatives. She did not have a relationship with her mother, and I think she always felt somewhat estranged and not like a normal home. And I think she also felt, as a gay person, that so many people she had met along the way were estranged from their families. Ricky first came out to California when she was 19 years old. She'd been going to college a couple hours away from home. And then Easter break of her sophomore year. The family dropped her at the bus station to go back to Denison. And she decided she had had it and was striking out on her own and got on a bus to Los Angeles. Ricky recounts this decision in the documentary. Well, let's see. Uh, my parents had died. My guardian had had a nervous breakdown. It was, uh, it was my second year at college, and it was Easter time. And I thought, I've just got to go. I, don't, I just really had to go. I don't know why. It was, I just felt that way. And, and I had not a clue about homosexuality, not a clue. I, I would have had to look up the word lesbian, I suppose. So I left... And, and I came out here on a Greyhound bus. So I wound up in Los Angeles about 11.30 one night with $12 in my pocket. Something had drawn Ricky to California, though at the time it wasn't entirely clear what. I was not a lesbian when I got here. This is Ricky on an interview tape from 1992. She's talking to historian Nan Alamilla Boyd for her oral history project, Wide Open Town, A History of Queer San Francisco to 1965. Although I always dressed in a tailored way and I wore pants whenever I could, riding breeches for days, right? Because mm -hmm. they were always acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I went to uh, work for this company that took pictures in all the big nightclubs, Maycombo Florentine Gardens. Mm -hmm. So Ricky would work in the dark room for this company, developing the photos. And uh, the, there was a camera girl. I, I got very close with her, and, and, and she was the sort of person, uh, she danced at the World's Fair or something, and she kept talking about her husband, the drummer, and uh, Tommy, her husband, the drummer. And she never invited me to her home, which was a contradiction of the person that she was. And I couldn't figure it out, but it was, you know, that's how it went. 
And one day she said, she gave me some pictures to develop for her mm -hmm. and, and, and negatives, you know, and I, uh, put the negatives in the, in the, in the enlarger and I, there was something unusual. I didn't know what, but something. So I pushed the enlarger all the way up the top and went over this woman's body who was sitting on a rock up at Big Bear, mm -hmm. but with just trunks on, no top. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is not a man. This is just not a man. <laughs> but it's got to be a man. It's Maria's husband, right? And uh, so finally I decided that absolutely this Tommy the drummer, her husband, was not a man. That was that. So I t developed pictures for her and I gave them to her. And I said, this is your husband? And she said, yes. And I said, Tommy? And she said, yes. And I said, Tommy's a woman? And she said, yes. I said, oh. And then I went off to think about that for a while. <laughs> and because we're talking here real innocence, I mean, you know, my sophistication ended at, at uh, being a sorority girl. <laughs> but uh, I then came back and, and the next day and she said, uh, would you like to come to dinner? And I said, yes. <laughs> no, I would. So I went to dinner and I met Tommy, who was very nice. And uh, of course, being a drummer meant that she was out in all the gay places and well-known. Tommy and Maria introduced Ricky to all of these gay places around Los Angeles. But it was a marvelous experience for the first time, having just discovered about lesbians and about gay, and then to walk into this bar and, and see all of these women under one roof. And I, I remember I just sort of stood there and I looked around and I wasn't altogether sure what I was looking at, except I knew I knew that for me, it was it, and I was home. And this is how Ricky met her good friend, Reba Hudson, whom she often mentions on these tapes. Well, meeting Reba was certainly uh, <laughs> an adventure, an adventure for me. Mm -hmm. It got me to San Francisco, begging fruit from sailors every inch of the way. We met at some all-night party at Malibu. Meeting Reba that night, would change the course of Ricky's life and the history of lesbian nightlife as we know it. She said, you mean you've never come to San Francisco? And I said, no. And she said, you've got to. Oh, no. She said, you've got to see San Francisco. So we were going up and down Hollywood Boulevard. Mm -hmm. This party had lasted two days. And then we got on a train to come up here, which was uh, 18 hours. And I had 50 cents, which Reba borrowed from me, bought magazines, which left me hungry. So anyway, we got here Easter Sunday morning. It was raining and, and uh, never left. It was 1945 when Ricky's train finally arrived in San Francisco. Well, I had found out I wasn't straight mm -hmm. by then, God mm -hmm. knows. But of course, the first thing I did when I got here was I said, aha. <laughs> in a minute, I said, aha. And, and uh, cut off my hair and became a dyke. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, well, it was a butch, not a dyke. Yeah. Ricky's rapid transformation from femme to butch presenting was memorialized in side-by-side -side portraits on the wall at Mods. Well, it was filled with photos. Mm. And, you know, there was the beautiful portraits of Ricky that were, you know, her with young with curly hair. And then a year later, she's in her whole drag. Bought a jacket and put on a tie. And there it is. That all happened within about a year. One or the other. One was 20 and one was 21. It was here in San Francisco from the late 40s to the early 60s that Ricky really came into her queer identity. She 
spent much of her 20s and 30s immersed in the lesbian nightlife scene. Well, in those days, all of the, all of the women's bars were on Broadway in North Beach. This is a time period we'll be covering much more extensively in our next episode. There was Mona's, Chi-Chi's, the Candlelight, mm-hmm. those three, and they were all women's bars. And that mm-hmm. was that was the, the total scene here in San Francisco for mm-hmm. women. Ricky supported herself working in the local bars and restaurants and eventually got a well-paying job as an x-ray technician. She stayed there for 10 years, presumably saving up some money. And then in 1966... She opened Mods, her first of many businesses. Gloria Grant, whom I had known over the years, had bought Bradley's across the street. And she'd opened Bradley's. This was in 1965. She said to me, there's a bar called The Study, and I think they'd make a wonderful woman's bar. And we talked about it. So we agreed that we would be partners and buy it, which we were. I, I opened the bar in April 1966, and well, we called it Mods, and it was Mod Study. People would say, talk to each other on the phone and say, well, you want to go to the library tonight? <laughs> that's how, that's how uh, careful one had to be back then. And why name it Mods rather than Ricky's? Noel Coward was writing a lot of songs in the 60s, and I thought that he had written a song. I do not know the name of it. It was one line in it that sort of caught my fancy, and it was, Maud, there are fairies buried in the bottom of your garden. Maud, you rascal, you. And according to Ricky, Maud's was an instant success. Because there was no pressure in Maud's. We're back with Paris and Karen, the filmmakers. Like you could wear whatever you wanted. Um, You could get stoned in the backyard. Um, The beer was really cheap. I remember. Oh, 75 cents. For a long time. Yeah. 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 But I think during the day, the beer in mods was 30 cents. I mean, you know, really was very accessible. In so many ways, you know, for example, keeping drink prices low, it was clear that Ricky cared deeply about her customers' well-being. That's really what made Maud so special. There were large photos on the walls that were had been taken at softball games in different places of different customers. And then there were these photo collages that had events of parties and whatnot. So y- y- it really felt like our space, even if you weren't included in the photos, which I wasn't, but it it was different than any other place. No other bar puts beautiful portraits of customers, just ordinary everyday dykes. You knew that someone cared, yeah. like the owner really cared about who was going in there. and And that's hard to find. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there are many spaces that exist like that or did exist like that. And that imagery of lesbians, you know, big blown up pictures of, of lesbians. Th- there weren't pictures of lesbians anywhere else. The other thing Ricky used to do was have horoscope parties. Um, she was big on people's birthdays. And this was to celebrate every customer's birthday. So if they, there'd be a Virgo party and a Capricorn party and these beautiful signs. And then there'd be a special night ju- just celebrating those people. I mean, people, other bars didn't do that. Ricky understood this on a very personal level, that a lot of the women at Mods didn't have families supporting them or childhood homes to return to, 
Like Ricky, many had moved to San Francisco to embrace a part of their identity that couldn't have fully flourished back at home. That was a, a major function of going to mods is building a community. This is Jeannie, a mods regular. A lot were uprooted. People were migrating at that time. People were leaving their homes. I stayed open 365 days a year because I said, if these women can come here for all the other days in the whole and entire wide world, we will be open Thanksgiving and we will be open Christmas and we will have food for anybody who wants it. And we did. If anybody wanted it, it was there. Mm -hmm. and, and it was always filled with people, mm -hmm. not because of the food, but just because of the ambiance of doing it. Uh -huh. You know, and I always made the bartenders work. They couldn't pass it off as, as somebody else's. If they could get those tips 365 days a year, they could be there on Christmas, too. Mm -hmm. And they were. Mm -hmm. And so was I. This is something we've heard at many of today's lesbian bars. They stay open for holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas because sadly, even today, many queer folks must choose between being themselves and familial acceptance. But mods may very well have been the first lesbian bar to start this tradition. You have no place to go for Thanksgiving or Christmas because you, you don't have any family or you're not welcome there. Ricky Stryker would have a meal at that bar. This is Mandy Carter, a former mods regular and bartender. Mandy is exactly the kind of person Ricky was trying to accommodate. She was born in New York in November of 1948. You know, the brother one year older than and a sister two years older. Our mother, after I was born, our mother left and never came back. We became wards of the state. Of, we became orphanages, basically, the ward of the state of New York, at least for my first 18 years. She couldn't take care of us anymore. So she literally gave us up. And when she gave us up, the, the system came into effect. And that's when they place you into different places. That's how we ended up at the Albany Children's Home which is like an orphanage. Now I think they call them children home societies. Mandy and her siblings, Ronnie and Dolores, lived at the Albany Children's Home for eight years. But the home got sold. And when the home got sold, they had to figure out what do they do with these 70 or 80 children. And because we were black, they faced me, my brother, and Dolores into a black foster home down in Chatham Center, New York. This particular foster home usually only took in boys, but with so few black foster families in the system and in the interest of keeping the three kids together, they made an exception. They've been doing it for quite some time. They have, they have like uh, people on file and it's very few kids of color know where to get placed and they were willing to take any black children. And so they took the three of us in. And unsadly, until I got my period at 12, all of a sudden the foster mother says, I can't take care of you. I'm worried about you getting pregnant or whatever. And that was the only reason. But how many other children had that have the same thing happen? Because she didn't. And she was like elderly, but never to have been told that. But my, my brother got to stay because he, he was a boy. My brother got to stay. Dolores got shipped off. It's connected to Children's Home and I did. Dolores had actually been sent away the year before Mandy, which we can only assume now was related to getting her period as well. By the time Mandy arrived at the Schenectady Children's Home the next year, Dolores had already been relocated. Ronnie, however, stayed with the foster family in Chatham Center, New York, and would lose contact with Mandy entirely for 50 years. If that's a policy within the social services is, 
that's just, they have no idea how destructive that is for people. So if you go Albany Children's Home, age one to eight, eight to 12, Chatham Center and the Black Foster family, and then 12 until 18 at the Schenectady Children's Home, which is still there. And when you age out, you age out. You're on your own, whatever you might want to end up deciding to do. That's just how the system works. At 18, after graduating high school, Mandy spent one summer in New York City. The home said, well, good luck. You're on your own. So I had $80 in my pocket, took a bus down to New York City. I knew no one, got into the Y, walked the streets of New York City, slept in Central Park. But this is 67. It wasn't just me. There was a whole number of summer. That was the summer of love in New York City. I wasn't the only one. It was like a lot of people were just, we're not living on this. We were just, that was just part of the, the hippie thing. You know, it was fun. I had a sleeping bag, felt safe. The summer of love refers to the hippie movement that peaked in the summer of 1967. Think music from the likes of Jimi Hendrix, the Bee Gees, Pink Floyd, and the Beatles, psychedelic drugs, anti-war, free love, bell bottoms, and tie-dye. I could have stayed a little bit longer, but I was ready to move on. Everyone was going to San Francisco. While New York was a popular place to be during the summer of love, it couldn't compare to San Francisco. Over the course of the summer of 1967, hundreds of thousands of young people flocked to the West Coast. You know who else was hitchhiking out to San Francisco? Janis Joplin who, side note, famously spent some time at Mods. So there was this whole kind of 60s um, dropout, tune-in, whatever, and a lot of people were moving, not just LGBT. It wasn't just queer people, but there were certainly a lot of us among the masses migrating to San Francisco. And by the end of the 1960s, San Francisco had gained its reputation as a gay city. It was on, like, the cover of Time. Like, it oh, was right. the gay mecca. There was Paris and Karen are talking about a controversial 1969 issue of Time magazine titled The Homosexual in America, which featured a cover story pointing to San Francisco's thriving gay scene. But it wasn't an altogether positive representation of the queer community. The article labels gay people as seeming, quote, fairly bizarre to most Americans. But even media attention like this just further fueled the gay and lesbian migration to San Francisco. And it all said San Francisco, the yes, Mecca, the Mecca, yes, the right. Mecca. That's where everybody was. So it and got this so, tremendous promotion. The city did. Right. It's where you went um, to flee the East Coast and family and whatever you were. You were running to something when you went to San Francisco because you knew there was a community there. You knew you could be yourself and you knew you could afford to live there put our thumbs out and got to San Francisco, hitchhiked out to San Francisco. That's how we got there. And one time we ended up hopping a train. I mean, literally we got on a train that was going to California. You know, we got rides from VW buses. The hippie thing was going on and, you know, it was the place to be. And I didn't know anything about it. I was just basically a follower. <laughs> This is Jeannie Clark, a mods regular who came out to California a few years after Mandy did. There's a really great bar. It's mods, and there are really beautiful women there, and you should go there. This was all Jeannie knew having arrived in San Francisco in the summer of 1969. She was 26 at the time and newly out. I went 
every night for a year uh, because I didn't know what else to do as uh, a young lesbian trying to figure out the world. Like Mandy and Ricky and probably a big portion of the people migrating out to the West Coast, Jeannie comes from a complicated family history. My mother, I think, had her first breakdown when I was about three years old and was taken to the state mental hospital. As an infant, she had been adopted into a pretty tumultuous family. This was in Macon, Georgia. I remember, her, you know, she would pull, pull the keys out of the car and threw them out the window. And she just, you know, did not want to be locked up. You know, I think she was there for about three months, which is big in the life of a child. Um, I think she went in all maybe four or five times. So um, I failed the third grade on one of the trips. Uh, it, you know, I feel sad now even just talking about it. But then at age 11, Jeannie would discover her first iteration of a chosen family. My mother went to the hospital sometime around there and I went to work down at my daddy's drugstore. He didn't own it, but he managed it, and it was his little fiefdom. There was a group of young women who worked at the drugstore. They took Jeannie under their wing. I think they all knew that my mother was sick and because she had come down there sometimes and act out. So they, I was like their baby, and they, you know, <laughs> I, was, I was 11 years old, and Sarah was mama. Eloise was grandma, but Sarah was so pretty, and she would hold my hand, and oh, I loved that. Oh, I love that so much. And <laughs> if she would hug me, I liked that a lot, too. Even when Jeannie's mother was home from the hospital, she preferred the company of Eloise and Sarah. My parents did fight, and my dad would be violent. And my dad's drinking was increasing, you know, it's a progressive disease. So it would be ugly. And, you know, there would be fighting at dinner and plates flying. And it was like, I don't want to be here. I basically sort of ran away from home and stayed over with Eloise and all these other women who lived in this boarding house. It was about $7 a week. So I just stayed with them, and I'd sleep in the bed with them, and, you know, my mother was upset about it, but I just stayed away from home. I stayed kind of the whole summer. Fifteen years would pass, after Jeannie's first crushes on Eloise and Sarah, until she was able to live relatively openly as a gay woman in San Francisco. That's a long time to wait, you know, when you're that young, most of your life. You know, you're 26 years old. You want to get a little love by then, you know. <laughs> You've been waiting since you were 11 years old. That's a long time to wait. So you can see why a place like Maud's would mean everything to Jeannie. Gradually, I started to know people. I started to know Ricky. I used to like to go to Maud's in the daytime when Ricky, Ricky would work. A lot of lesbians would like to sit in the bar and chit-chat with Ricky, you know, when she was working in the daytime. And so we'd all sit down at the end of the bar. There'd be seven or eight of us, and it was the most fun. 
Mandy would set foot in mods for the first time that same year in 1969. Everyone said, if you ever make it to San Francisco, you need to know there's a bar called Mod Study. You need to go there. But because you had to be 21 to go into the bar, I sat across the street. I had to wait like two years, literally, to turn legally 21 to go into that bar. And it was on my on my 21st birthday, November 2nd, I went into Mods for the first time in my life. And it was extraordinary. Scared to death like a lot of other people. Um, but I remember, if you remember when you first walk into Mods, you look exactly to the left, there's a, those seats, that's exactly where I sat. I didn't go into the main part of Mods. I sat there in that little section right there, knife and safe. And you know that window that you that that window was not there. That was all covered over. But I sat there, and I think I ordered a drink. And all gay men worked at that bar because in 1967 or 69, whatever year I ended up going into the bar, unless you owned that bar, women could not be bartenders. That was the ABC law. So all the men we got to be at the bar came from the Castro. They were all gay men. And I said, how oh, I'm here for my 21st birthday. He said, let me buy you a drink for your 21st birthday. That was my first introduction to mods, thinking, oh, I feel like welcome here. Women wouldn't earn the right to bartend in the state of California until the 1971 landmark case Sailor Inn, Inc. v. Kirby, the details of which are kind of a funny story. Sailor in Inc. owned a restaurant called The Classic Cat in Los Angeles. The Classic Cat was a topless bar, and they wanted to be able to have topless female bartenders. They won the case, but not before California's Alcohol Beverage Control Board added a new rule. Bartenders had to be fully clothed. So there were no topless bartenders for The Classic Cat. But thanks to them, bars across the state could finally hire women bartenders. And Ricky could start hiring her customers, like Mandy. Ricky oftentimes would say, if anyone wants to be a bartender, we can train you. And I had the good fortune of ending up to be a bartender at Mods for a while. According to Ricky, she was one of the only bar owners to hire women of color at the time. I'm the only one, as a matter of fact, behind the bar managing, mm -hmm. you name it, I don't care, mm -hmm. never did. I happen to have a view of women of color or women of any kind, you know, with or without color, is that, it's, is that it happens to be the individual that matters. Mm -hmm. And how they come wrapped is neither here nor there. You can be a black asshole or a white asshole. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make no difference. In Mandy's experience, the San Francisco lesbian community as a whole didn't actively discriminate against people of color. You had like 12 different lesbian bars. None of them were specifically people of color, none of them, but they all welcomed you. In the lesbian community, it was more, they were just lucky to have you as a lesbian. I mean, you weren't discriminated against being a black and lesbian or Latino and lesbian. But that doesn't mean people of color always felt entirely comfortable in white-run spaces like mods. It was just the way I think San Francisco society and culturally the music they played, it was Janis Joplin, it was, you know, the Beatles started to happen. And the music they played, it just seemed like not maybe as welcoming. And while anyone could walk in the door at Mods, there was a complicated social hierarchy amongst the regulars. It was like uh, there was a sorority feeling to it, I think, for the people who were regulars. We were refugees from the straight culture. And so we brought a lot of sexist attitudes 
uh, into our situation. This is something Jeannie spoke a lot about. There was a pecking order, and the women who could pass for straight or were better looking, you know, were on the top of the pile. And I was always fat. I was never a skinny person. You know, so that's why it hurt my feelings. Jeannie showed us her copies of the Mods yearbooks that they used to give out at reunion parties. But her feelings were hurt that she wasn't in any of the photos. I felt like I was a contributor to the culture, and I did not even appear in that book, not even referenced. We've heard a lot about the sort of general clickiness at Mods, and it seems Ricky at least had a hand in fostering that sense of an in-crowd. When she turned 50, it was such a big deal, you know, and everybody, you know, is a big party and all that stuff. And, you know, how old am I? I don't know about y'all's age or something, you know, so I want to ask her for wisdom or advice or something. And I think she was very amused by me asking, uh, you know, because it was sort of silly. She was only 50. And then I says, well, that I wanted to be more friends. And she said, I think we ought to just leave it like it is. And so I kind of, I was not in the in crowd with Ricky. Have you heard of Olivia, the travel company for lesbians and LGBTQ plus women? You know what they say, Those who wish to sing always find a song. And when you're a lesbian or LGBTQ plus woman, you want to be able to go on vacation, have some laughs, and be your unique self. Olivia Travel creates full takeovers of their cruise resort riverboat and adventure vacations. And they program every trip with comedians and musicians from our community. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll have the time of your life. Discover Olivia for yourself at Olivia.com or through the link in our show notes and save $100 on your next Olivia booking when you use promo code CRUISING. The in-crowd at Mods definitely informed the culture there. But this wasn't what would eventually prompt Jeannie and many others to leave San Francisco's lesbian nightlife scene. I mean, the whole gay community was into drugs in a big way. The women uh, were into uh, coke. Men were into speed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that if if there's a way, mm-hmm. if you could generalize in such an awful way, that's mm-hmm. that's the way I would generalize. Mm-hmm. But I at, at mods, they really embraced this whole concept of drugs. And there had been problems all along, but I didn't realize that those were consequences. You know, losing things or you know, winding up somewhere that you didn't want to wind up with somebody you didn't want to wind up with and, you know, scary, scary stuff. But I, you know, bars were how I, what I knew to do. Alcoholism and addiction were huge unspoken issues in the community. We didn't have any breaks. We weren't worried about getting drunk. We weren't worried about any of that. You know, we were all doing it together. People were drinking. Nobody's worried about alcoholism. When did you start worrying about alcoholism? (laughs) When I was 36. (laughs) A lot of women kind of disappeared, and I wondered where they went. And it turned out that a lot of these women that had used to be in the bar 
who had, you know, some raucous behavior for sure, were going to AA. At age 36, a decade after moving to San Francisco, Jeannie got sober. Gay and lesbian AA was starting to ramp up, and there was uh, starting to be a community there. And um, my friend Iris had been in about four automobile accidents, you know, drunk driving things. So she and I talked at mods about going to AA. I, of course, thought Iris really has a problem. And uh, we went that night, and um, Iris stopped drinking immediately. And it took me about another five months, but I kept going. And my dad's alcoholism was progressing. I saw what that looked like. That was very ugly. And I just didn't want that for my own life. And AA seemed to be presenting a choice, that there was a queer community there. The first unofficial gay AA groups began popping up in San Francisco at the end of the 1960s. By 1974, gay groups could be officially listed in the AA directory. And by the time Jeannie got sober in 1979, gay and lesbian AA groups had spread to cities across the country. There weren't that many queer meetings, so we would go on Monday night to the lesbian meeting, then we would go on Thursday to Berkeley, then we would drive on Wednesday up to uh, Mill Valley for the meeting there. So there were small meetings, and we would circulate around. But then it became huge in the 80s. And I remember Ricky saying to me, that all of her customers were marching down the street behind the Living Sober banner. Of course, Ricky was joking, partially at least, but I imagine it would have been a bittersweet time. Seeing all these people she had grown to love and care about making healthier choices, and also knowing it might mean the end of mods. Some of it was the bar was closing because of uh, AA and people you know, um, moving along to a different life. Why did Moss close? Closed because times had changed. It was right down the street here. And I didn't own the building. And and the rent had gotten very high. And, uh, you know, for a while it was just a handful of women over there and very slowly it turned along. But it was just time to, uh, sometimes it's time to go. And that was the case over at Maud's. I... Almost let it go too long, but I I stopped just in time. Like it sometimes we oh no moths can't close, you know that type of thing. She's like, okay, get a grip. And here's what it's all about. This is Susan Fahey again, Ricky's friend and bar manager at the time of Maud's closing. She says a lot of their business had come from the Bay Area Women's Softball League. All the teams had home bars, including Maud's, and they'd always go back for drinks after the games. You know, it was getting good income from softball and all this kind of stuff. By those last couple of years, there, the Barry Women's Softball League, I think, was gone and income was dwindling. You know, it, you can only run a bar so long with X amount of slow nights. Ricky officially announced Mods was going to close in 1989. And Paris said, oh, that's the film to make. This, as you know, is when Paris and Karen began working on their documentary, Last Call at Mods.
They were on board. Everybody got yeah. it. They got it. They knew. Paris was at USC. And Cheryl. And Cheryl, the Cheryl cinematographer, was, was, was a regular at Mods. Yeah, and was a student of Paris's, and she had graduated. And so they trusted Cheryl and, and trusted you. So they got permission to film inside Mods during the last few days of the bar's existence in 1989. I mean, there was um, some pushback in terms of, um, you know, we took over for four days, the last four days, and we had to have the jukebox silage, for instance, because we knew we couldn't get the rights to any music. And, you know, so that was sort of a drag for them to deal with, but they complied. And although Ricky had agreed to have them in the bar and agreed to an interview, it would take some time for Paris and Karen to fully gain her trust. It took a lot to get her to open up her archives. Over the years, Ricky had created an extensive personal archive. She was a camera girl. She had taken all these films and photos. She didn't open that up to us right away. We had to win her trust with that we were going to make a film that was going to honor Because the bar. we were not regulars at we the bar. We were regulars. So she didn't know how sincere we were. I mean, mm-hmm. she thought we were. She presumed it. And then we had a later cut. There was, it was about a year and a half into the editing process. And we were at Ricky's house and we showed it and it introduced into the bar. And she could see where the film was going at that point. And she said, what do you need? And we said, archives. And that was that. The B-roll was covered. People might not realize this, but, you know, the little bits of the interior of mods from the 1970s, the footage that's in the film, that's extremely rare stuff. Video cameras in the 1970s were expensive and bulky. Not very many people owned them, and those that did probably didn't tend to bring them out to the bar. And at lesbian bars specifically, you had to be careful taking photos and videos in the 1970s. Lots of people wouldn't have wanted to be on camera. Some weren't out at all to their friends and family. Some had jobs that they could lose if they were outed. There's not a whole lot of it out there because women wouldn't let themselves have their photos be taken. Ricky had the trust of the people within the bar. And Um, they were drunk. Well, there is. A lot of the time. And so (laughs) their guard was down. (laughs) And these were just home movies, you know, so they knew that they wouldn't get out to the public. So for all of these reasons, archival lesbian bar footage from that time is a rare piece of history. After filming the bars last week in 1989, Paris and Karen would spend four years editing, budgeting, and getting on Ricky's good side for those archives. It was the money and and, um, not getting the archives from Ricky right away. And shooting the archives was expensive. You had to go into a lab and, you know, the camera was mounted on the ceiling and it would do, you know, close-ups and long shots and tilts and pans and all that stuff. So that was pricey. Yeah, it was $250 an hour. That was a lot of money back then. There were many times that we were out of money and, you know, we were getting discouraged. And I kept saying, no, this has to be a feature film. It has to be at least 75 minutes in length, you know, in order to qualify as a feature. And it has to get done. It it must be finished. And it took on a life of its own. I mean, it was sort of like a, a baby demanding to be born, you know? Until finally... 
on February 5th, 1993. Last Call at Mods premiered at the Castro Theater in San Francisco. The critics loved it. We didn't realize it at the time, but we had an automatic publicity machine in place because there were queer newspapers all across the country. And so we got free publicity because they would interview us and, you know, show pictures from the film and that sort of and thing. And review it. And, and review it. And so, so I, we didn't have to yeah. pay for ads. We couldn't, we could barely afford that. We were um, shortlisted for the Academy documentary. Um, they have a list 10 are on the short list and five get a nomination and we were amongst the 10. So we got an Academy screening and stuff, which was very nice. And the interesting thing is after it had done its rounds and it had been around for a little bit, we got this very official letter from the Library of Congress and it was an order. It's not a, hey, we like your film. Do you want to put it in the... No, it's like, you must and you will. And like penalty of law, like you have to do it. We sent it because they made you. I mean, that to me was now and even then the the biggest honor. But as any artist knows, you can't please everyone. Here's Jeannie. Oh, I hated it. It was just phony to me. I wanted to see our actual culture. And then they got talked into getting well-known women, lesbians, to talk, who weren't necessarily patrons of the bar. The well-known lesbians Jeannie is talking about are Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon. They were some of the founders of the Daughters of Belitis, the country's first lesbian civil rights organization. Let's let's just back up a bit and say, DLB got started in 1955. We did not know that there was the Mattachine Society and one incorporated. But Paris and Karen stand by their decision to include Phyllis and Dell in the film. When we were putting together the cast of characters, one thing I was really adamant about, I said, we need, we need the perspective of what bars are and bar culture, because this is bigger than just this bar closing. It's a, it's a story about, you know, what bars have meant historically to the movement and that has to be done by the academic, some kind of academic voices need to be there. And so there was actually a bit of friction um, between Phyllis and Dell, who came and the historians and Judy Gron and poet and whatnot, that they weren't mods regulars. They had certainly been to mods. Everybody had been there, but they weren't regulars of the bar. And so the regulars and the bartenders were a little suspicious of that. But really, the opinion that mattered most was Ricky's. Here's Susan Fahey again. I think she was really pleased that her little place um, was was getting that attention. I mean, she had a sense of history, certainly. Um, but I do, do think she cared about it a lot. We took a while to finish the film, and we were nervous. We wanted to make sure it was done while she was still um, alive and well, and she was, and that was, I was really grateful for that. Mm -hmm. Um, and she could really see the success. I mean, at first we were sending her all the reviews. Last Call It Mods premiered just a year and a half before Ricky would pass away from cancer. She was diagnosed in late 1990. 
and turned out she had a had a kind of unusual form of cancer that was treatable but not curable. I mean, it wasn't. She had treatments, but they didn't end up really helping much. But originally, when she was diagnosed, she thought she only had a year or two to live. She ended up living longer, but you know, it wasn't like a long, slow period of decline. I noticed her appetite was getting less. You know, that's about really the only thing I can see that her her humor stayed good. I could see some days she was more tired than others. Except, you know, before the end, she went into a semi-coma. In the end, Susan, along with Ricky's partner, Mary Sager, were by her side every day. Ricky passed on August 21st, 1994, at the age of 68. Here's Mandy. We were really good friends, and I, I was devastated when Ricky passed. But I remember uh, one of the things she did, I remember one of the last trips I took to San Francisco, you know the bar at Monch, what used to be the old bar she had chopped up and made into these wonderful, it says like last call at Monch, it's part of the bar with a plaque on it. I have it here somewhere. And she gave those out as gifts. The plaques read, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was our time. That quote on the on the plaque basically was her whole, how her philosophy was. And they have a number of tributes to her at uh, right in front of the Castle Theaters. It's like a, a marker that says Ricky Stryker. And there's something at the LGBTQ Museum, which is not far around the corner, I think, on 18th Street. So there's ways to remember her um, and her legacy. When we talked to Jeannie, she read aloud some words Ricky had written for Maud's 20th anniversary party. Welcome to Maud's 20th anniversary. Isn't it amazing? In 1966, a good many of you said you were 21 and older. In 1986, all of you claimed to be 35. It just proves that there have been many nights at Maud's when time has, in fact, stood still. Jeannie and Mandy had moved on from Maud's well before the bar actually closed its doors. Mandy to move to North Carolina in 1982 and Jeannie to get sober back in 79. And both women would spend their post-Maud's days searching for biological family. Oh, it was a long search. It really took about 20 years, but I wasn't looking all the time. I was kind of intermittently looking. Early on in her search, Jeannie was able to find her biological mother. She saw me a little bit, but she was angry and uptight for me uh, contacting her. And I said, well, you know, I know it might be hard to tell me, but, you know, I'd like to know who my father is. And she says, oh, Jeannie, why do you have to know? And I wanted to know, and um, she she was supposed to meet me the next day, and she didn't come. And that was terrible. Jeannie would spend the next 20 years looking for her father. She eventually figured out his name through an adoption group, and from there, tracked down the phone number of one of her half-sisters. I called her, and I was very scared, uh, but I had learned in AA how to walk through fear. And um, I mentioned different people I knew who the 
grandparents and all those people were. And I said, I have reason to believe that I'm related to you. And, uh, and then I had been told, be quiet and see what they do. And um, she asked me if I was all right, <laughs> which was very sweet. And th so then I knew it was going to be safe to go ahead and r roll out my little story um, about a nurse who went to Rex, who was in training at Rex Hospital right next to the campus where our dad went to school, and he was a little horn dog. And they knew that he was a little horn dog and a womanizer. And um, so they're not completely shocked. Later, she said, well, we were afraid a whole family would show up. Jeannie was too late to meet her horny dad. He died years earlier, but not too late to form meaningful bonds with the family she had left. I am very close with my nephew. His mother, my half-sister, died when he was 14. And um, I had already been focused on making a relationship with him from the time he was four when I met him. And so I just came up with this idea after his mother died that we would go on trips. And so we would go on a trip every summer. First, he was into going into Civil War reenactments, and I was into it too, history. And then we started going other places, and so we just we just went to the Grand Canyon That's so <laughs> in cool. October. So I'm like getting emotional. That's, That's amazing. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Mandy's search, on the other hand, has been ongoing, though she already knew the people she was looking for. I lost contact with Ronnie for 50 years because I, we, we had no way to know where I was. He didn't know where I was. I didn't know where he was. Nor did they really know any identifying information about each other. I did not know our mother's name. I didn't know where she was born. We didn't know the circumstances as to why the three of us were let go, why she gave us up. You know, life happens. Then Mandy moved to North Carolina in 1982 and went to get her driver's license. They said, I'll tell you what, Mandy, now that you're now trying to get a driver's license, you need to have it. We're going to send you what they call your paperwork. Your paperwork is like uh, all the information, your mother's name, where she was born, your father's name, where he was born. So now Mandy had all of her records, but this wouldn't successfully lead her to family for another 40 years when, in 2020, she put her information into Ancestry.com. And then, in 2022, Ronnie popped up. Now, I need to tell you something. Ronnie and I have known each other. Like, I got along with my brother, my brother Ronnie when we were living in that black foster home. I got along with Ronnie really well. And even though I had to leave and got shipped to um, Schenectady at the age of 12, um, Ronnie and I, we just had a relationship, and I lost track with him. So when I saw his email... And I saw I could email him. I knew I felt comfortable. He wrote back and said, Mandy, I can't believe you're contacting me. And I said, can I find a way to not only call you, but can I Zoom you? And I'm telling you, I didn't cry. We just picked up the conversation like we did if I had been 12 years old. That was the power of that conversation. It was like Ronnie. He said, Mandy, 
And the first thing I said, what did they tell you why I, I had to leave? And he said, because you didn't want to be here anymore. And for the first time in 59 years, I said, Ronnie, they lied to you. That's a lie. We lived with that for 59 years. But think about that. I'll never forgive that woman. And then I said, let's pick up the conversation where we were when I last saw you at 12, and that's what we've been doing. It is that powerful. And it, I felt like that. So we were good friends. He looks just like me. He's all bald now, you know, but he looks just like me. We always looked alike. And now again, we're on the quest to find Dolores if we can. Neither Ronnie nor Mandy had had any contact with Dolores since the last time they all lived together as children. We can't find Dolores. We don't know if she's dead or alive. We're trying to find her. We don't know if she got married or not. We don't know if she's using the same name or not. Yeah, at one point uh, when I got my paperwork, it says she ended up living in Los Angeles, California. We had the actual address. We can't, we don't know how to find her. And their search continues to this day. In the meantime, Mandy and Ronnie video call frequently, and Mandy stays in touch with Chosen Family, people she's known for 50 years now from back in the day at Mods. It's now called Finnegan's Wake. But you know what? On the, if you go to the Facebook page of Finnegan's Wake, they have the, the last call at Mods on their website, and they keep that sign there. And we did reunions. After, after Mods closed officially, we started doing reunions at Mods. Or rather at Finnegan's Wake. This is actually how we first found Mandy, because she's the admin on the Mods Reunion Facebook page. I think the last one we did is when, when Mods would have been 50. Um, but but Finnegan Waits continues to be a very welcoming place for the LGBT community. I've gone there. And you uh, did you meet Tom? Is who, uh, Who's the owner? Tom Frankel. We did, in fact, stop by Finnegan's Wake, and we met the one-of-a-kind Tom. Do you mind if I record your voice for the podcast? No, not at all. Okay, you can do whatever voice you want, just as long as I I can do lots of voices. (laughs) I love that. Made Ricky an office. She couldn't refuse. You know, I said, you're going to sell me this bar, right? All kidding aside, I don't care if you use that. That's my, of course, my gangster voice. Hi, Chuck. This silly guy owns Finnegan's Wake. Hi, my name is Tom Franco. I'm from St. Louis. I moved here in 1969. Uh, My sign is Neon, and my moon is in Emeryville. Tom bought the bar from Ricky in 1989. Well, the story is I had a bar on 24th Street from 1976 to 1984 where... A real jerk, uh, can I swear on this? A real mother asshole of a San Francisco landlord evicted me, even for no reason at all, other than he liked to hurt people. And I said, but I don't want Finnegan's to die. So I spent years looking for another bar to buy, bid on a couple, uh, but tried to lowball everybody. And then finally, uh, I heard that Mods was for sale, okay? So Ricky was using an agent because she was actually sick at the time, but I met her, we talked, we got along well, and she said, you know, I just wasn't going to sell this bar to anybody, but you seem like a nice guy, so I'll sell it to you. And I said, that's terrific. As fun as Tom is, I was curious to know why Ricky sold to him rather than someone opening a gay bar who would more likely keep the spirit of mods alive. 
She'd had a bunch of offers on the bar, but she wouldn't sell it to people. She thought that the lesbian bars were pretty much dead because of the clean and sober movement. She didn't care what kind of bar it turned into as long as it was a friendly neighborhood bar. And she did she explicitly say to you that she wanted to sell her bar to you because she, you were friendly, because she trusted you to like create that environment there? She, she told you She that? told me that, uh, that uh, she got a good vibe from me and that I seemed like a decent, nice person. Tom's a very pleasant, outgoing person who already had a piece of a kind of neighborhood bar, mostly straight type of neighborhood bar. As I mentioned, Susan Fahey had been the bar manager and a confidant of Ricky's back when Maud sold. He wasn't looking to make it something else. I think Ricky was pleased that uh, he liked the idea of it being a neighborhood bar. They just got along. Obviously, he must have been willing to pay whatever price she wanted. Funny enough, Tom says he couldn't actually afford it at the time. I said, well, I promise you that uh, you won't regret it. Can you loan me $50,000? And she, she burst out laughing. But we pay, I paid it off right as soon as I could. So she did loan you the money to buy it? Oh, yeah, but I had to put my house up in it uh, as a guarantee. <laughs> it sounds kind of unbelievable that Ricky would have chosen to sell the bar to someone who didn't even have all the money to buy it, especially when she had all these other offers. But it wasn't about the money for Ricky. It wasn't even about the community. It was about community, period. She was really about the community. It wasn't just having a bar you can go get a drink and, you know, whatever. Remember, she said at one point, Mandy, you know, anyone can go down to the 7-Eleven and buy a six-pack of beer for less than what it costs you to buy a beer in this bar. Why do you think they come to this bar? And then she said they come here because this community. They come here because you can call it a place to call home. You feel safe. The thing about a bar was, number one, a bar had... Well, at least mine did, and it's true of the others, too. You you knew that when you went in there, you were safe. It was a safe place. Or you were surrounded by people and you weren't alone. And in that way, Tom has kept the mod spirit alive, something we witnessed in real time just in the way he treated us. I'm a very friendly person, and so this is... This is how I am. I'm like this all the time. Unless there's a need for to be different. But th- this is my modus operandi. And, of course, everybody's welcome because I'm not a person who wants anybody to be kept out of my places except for assholes and jerks. There are still some physical remnants of mods throughout the bar a red phone booth that now houses an ATM, the original mod sign, which the bartender happily pulled out of storage to show us. And, of course, one of the mod's plaques, the ones that Mandy mentioned, that Ricky had made out of pieces of the original bar, inscribed with her own words. R.I.P. Mods. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was our time.
Cruising is independently reported and produced by a small but mighty team of three. Story producer and social media manager Rachel Karp, line producer and resident road trip driver Jen McGinnity, and story producer and audio engineer me, Sarah Gabrielli. Our theme song is by Joey Freeman. Thank you to our sponsors, Olivia Travel and Honda. You can find more at our website, cruisingpod.com, on social media at cruisingpod, and at patreon.com slash cruisingpod. Listen to Cruising wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, 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 o